Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Stephanie Sahuko returns to the program. Her work is featured in a whole bunch of exhibitions all over the United States. The Eamon Carter Museum in Fort Worth is presenting Stephanie Sihuko Double Vision, a site-specific commission that builds from the Carter's collection to investigate historical and art historical narratives around American imperialism in the Far West. The project was curated by Kristen Gaylord and will be on view in Fort Worth through next January. Sihuko is also included in Futures, a 32,000-square-foot pan-Smithsonian exhibition on view at the Smithsonian's Arts and Industries Building in Washington. That's up through July 6th. She's also in Constellations, Photographs and Dialogue at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. That shows up through August 21st. And Stephanie Sihuko Latent Images is at New York's Ryan Lee Gallery through March 12th. Sihuko works across media, such as installation and photography, to investigate how images have helped build racialized, exclusionary narratives that have helped construct history and determine citizenship. Among the institutions that have presented her projects and solo exhibitions of her work are the Baltimore Museum of Art, the Blaffer Art Museum at the University of Houston, the Contemporary Art Museum St. Louis, the University of Kentucky, the Cantor Arts Center at Stanford University, and the Asian Art Havana and Bucharest Biennials. On the second segment, Kate Wilson joins me to discuss a fascinating project and class she taught last semester at Washington University in St. Louis. If you listen to the program on Spotify, please give us a five-star rating. It'll help more people find the program. Stephanie Sihuko, after the break. On view at the Getty Center Museum through May 8th, the lively new exhibition Poussin and the Dance brings together 17th century painting and contemporary dance. Nicolas Poussin was the most influential French painter of his time and an artist fascinated by dance. Portraying dancing nymphs and satyrs, he drew inspiration from ancient Greek and Roman sculpture and envisioned dramatic, even violent, action with a choreographer's eye. This exhibition juxtaposes Poussin's dancing pictures with three original dance films by L.A.-based choreographers that explore the structure and subject matter of his paintings and challenge his position of cultural authority. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Mississippi Museum of Art is pleased to be the first to present A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration. This exhibition asks 12 contemporary artists to trace their personal stories through the Great Migration and explore their family connections to the South. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition will unveil newly commissioned works across media. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, opens at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson on April 9th. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. The Scene Changes, sculpture from the collection of Sheldon Museum of Art, presents a broad range of artistic approaches to sculpture, from exploration of the physical potential of material and form to use of the medium's capacity to convey concepts and narratives. The exhibition opens with sculpture deeply rooted in modernism, seminal works by Louise Bourgeois, Alexander Calder, and Isamu Noguchi, each a historical linchpin of the medium's evolution in the 1950s. Moving forward in time and practice, a second selection of works highlights modernism's concern with the distillation of primary form and pure materiality, as seen in works by Anne Truitt and John McCracken. To these, the museum adds simplified forms imbued with implicit narratives, works by Martin Purrier and Ursula von Reidingsvart. 
The exhibition follows a sculpture's progression into a medium that examines contemporary issues and tells complex stories, with works by Leonardo Drew, Nicholas Gallinan, and Amanda Ross Ho. The Scene Changes is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from February 2nd through July 2nd, 2022. And we're back. Stephanie Sihuko, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, it's good to be here. For this installation at the Eamon Carter, you chose to work with two Albert Bierstadt chromolithographs. Chromos were a kind of combination print and poster, only very high end. You know, they, 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 they might have cost $20, $40 in the mid-19th century, maybe like a week's worth wages for, for an average earner. So that is to say they're in color and they're, they're bright and they're often but not always based on paintings that that artist made. So Chromos explained, were you specifically interested in Bierstadt himself or in chromolithographs because they were a well-distributed medium or something else altogether? When I initially did the site visit to the Eamon Carter Museum of American Art, I was able to actually look at a lot of different artworks from their holdings. And so if you go to the main galleries, you know, you see a lot of the kind of formal paintings, sculptures, very, you know, large scale things. And then when we looked at the works on paper, for me, the the Bierstadt chromolithographs stood out because they did echo, you know, some of the larger, more famous paintings, but there were they were on a much more intimate scale. And so there was something about them as kind of works on paper that I thought were interesting, both in terms of their their reproductibility. Like you said, these were meant to be purchased or collected. Also, you know, they just had a, a much more intimate feel than the larger paintings. And you include on one of the walls at the Carter the top edge of the piece of paper on which the chromolithograph was painted, which kind of underscores its you know, real life existence as a trafficked, handled, much handled object. Yeah, absolutely. So by the ceiling of this large digital wall mural, which is the uh, based on one of the chromolithographs, you see this kind of color bar, also these printer registration marks. And so by consciously leaving that into the work, I really did want to talk about the kind of both the edges of the artwork in the sense that you know, it, it's pictorial space, but it's also bounded by a kind of artist's framing of what you're seeing inside of it. Also, yeah, just trying to be very conscious about showing that reproducibility of the work. So with that grounding, why did you pick Bierstadt? Well, I think because, so I paired Bierstadt with a number of other works from the Carter Collection, one being Frederick Remington. And Remington's sculptures of, you know, cowboys and the kind of the famous Bronco Buster sculpture, you know, those are such iconic kinds of portrayals of the American West. And then thinking, too, about how I always think Bierstadt is pretty ubiquitous in historical museums and especially framed as a kind of, you know, look into the American landscape. So I actually chose Bierstadt because I think he has a very popular space in the American imagination. So the two beer stats you have chosen, uh, and we'll have images of all of this on manpodcast.com, are Storm in the Rocky Mountains, which is on, on uh, makes up the back, if you will, of one, one, one half of the work. And on the other wall in chroma key green is a passage from the chromolithograph of the Rocky Mountains Lander, Lander's Peak, the famous painting now at the Met from 63-64, uh, 
and the chromo is from you know half a decade after that. You mentioned the Remingtons. We're going to get to them in a minute. Um, not only are they iconic and like the beer stats completely invented, the Carter has 28 of them. <laughs> so they aren't just common. They're common um, at that one. I mean, they're common to that museum's collection. Are there ideas or visual ideas of the American West within the beer stats that you were particularly interested in engaging? Yeah. I mean, you know, the the way that the installation is set up, you walk through this hallway and on top, you know, on top of the walls are photographs and and prints based on uh, works within the Carter's collection. And I needed a backdrop. I kind of needed something to visually hold the works together so they weren't just free floating across the wall. And then thinking about the Bierstadt chromolithographs, almost as wallpaper, which I know sounds sort of strange considering, you know, they're, they really do reference very iconic paintings, but I wanted to render them almost like a massive backdrop to the invention of the West, which really was the kind of crux of the entire installation. So one of the things you do with, with one of the, the chromos, Storm in the Rocky Mountains, is you mirror it against itself. So there are, are mirrored passages that, that are kind of like, you know, Rorschach tests within the picture. I mean, that does a couple of things. One of them is certainly, I mean, these Bierstadt paintings are all invented landscapes. None of these are, almost none of these are, are actual real places, whether it says Yosemite Valley or Rocky Mountains in the title or not. And that was not unusual in 19th century American painting. In fact, it was pretty darn common. I mean, vir- virtually every 19th century painting of the land you see by an American painter painter is in, in one way or another a fiction of a view. Bierstadt just did it more, <laughs> more, I mean, you know, Bierstadt just went over the top, shall we say. So why the mirroring and was that in part a, a playing with the question of fiction and reality within Bierstadt's work? Yeah, absolutely. And, and not just through Bierstadt by himself. I think if we tease out the sort of broader implications of what it means to imagine the West as a space in which, you know, one can move forward in, in which, you know, one can kind of cross the country and also think of it as a kind of space for invention, you know, whether that's like a new immigrant life or a kind of, you know, westward expansion. The Rorschach, right, is a very kind of, I would say, obvious metaphor for this notion of projection, even if it's not really there. And, you know, by by doing this kind of doubling and double doubling, really, of the chromolithographs across the wall, I really wanted to play off on this notion, too, of a kind of uh, double vision, which really is, you know, the title of the show. So there are two of the wall murals and they do face each other. And there are two quite different representations of the Bierstadts. You know, one is in four color uh, looking much closer to the original chromolithograph. And then the second one is rendered in this chroma key green color, similar to like a digitally manipulated backdrop in which, you know, one uses green screens to kind of superimpose anything in the background. Yes, that joke was not lost on me. I mean, you know, because the beer stats are themselves projections and backgrounds and made up, as would anything projected on, on chroma key similarly be. So, so beer stat was not, the most ideological artist of the American 19th century. You know, so for example, while 19th century American painting is, and and some photography, Watkins, was soaked in metaphor and used metaphor to address the idea of the American nation, Bierstadt had, you know, no use for those American fangled um, ideas. 
when Bierstadt wanted to address the West, he went and made a painting of the West. I mean, you know, Bierstadt is a literalist. Were there any parts uh, within these two chromos that you specifically wanted to present or unpack or put in discourse with the ideas you literally lay on top of them? You don't really see it from the larger installation shot, but if you go up close, you'll realize that there are images of native peoples depicted in these Bierstadts. And usually, you know, in, in one of the, the chromolithographs, they're very tiny. You know, it's, it's easy to miss, but they are there. And then in the other one, they actually form a pretty prominent part of the foreground. But, you know, they're also kind of presented in this sort of idyllic, you know, fantasy space of a Western landscape. And I really thought, too, about how to, you know, how to use this image and also change it, because I didn't necessarily want to promote that same, you know, notion of, of indigenous peoples as just being a kind of part of a flora and fauna of landscape. So on top are photographs of, on one of the walls, there are re-photographed Remington sculptures specifically of cowboys. And then on the mural behind it, I decided to digitally pixelate almost to the point of like blurring out or rendering difficult to see the actual outlines of the native peoples. And, you know, that that was a way to also kind of comment on, I guess, like the, the relationship between vision and what it means to think one is seeing something clearly. And so, you know, by by obscuring the audience's ability to see uh, what Bierstadt originally intended to show, I really did want to kind of like, uh, again, point to this notion of all the kind of manipulated narratives that happened, not even necessarily through Bierstadt himself, but how these paintings function today. Like, I think that when, you know, if if people are looking at these paintings as potential history lessons, which when I think one goes to an art museum, you know, one thinks that one is going to learn, right, about American history or American art, one can come away with some pretty interesting and totally inaccurate lessons from looking at these paintings. For which American art museums share a great deal of culpability. I, one of the things that has really driven me nuts in recent years is how art museums are public history museums. And in collection galleries especially, I think that responsibility isn't, isn't taken seriously enough. In in. The Lander's Peak chromo, which is the chroma keyed side of your installation, Bierstadt shows this fantasy scene that includes probably somewhere between one and 200 Native Americans, all of whom, literally all of whom, are ignoring the presence of a painter in their pseudo-midst, which is to say Bierstadt is simultaneously painting this scene as their homeland, but he's within it and they're pointedly ignoring him which I think is a really, I think in the usual dogmatic art museum presentation of work such as this is kind of miss, missed. I mean, like when the Met, the Met in, in its wall text for Lander's Peak says this, painted in New York after Bierstadt's return from these travels, this work advertised the landscape as a frontier destined to be claimed by white settlers and according to the doctrine of manifest destiny. That's not in this painting. <laughs> I mean, that's just not here. I mean, I understand why that's dogmatically correct, but this is a fake landscape with fake people in it. And, and to the extent that any of this can be suggested as real, it's that he, Bierstadt is presenting someone's home as their home. It's a very, I don't know, that 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 met wall. I mean, there's a lot of wall texts in a lot of American museums that I think are pretty bonkers, but but that's high on the list. 
so one of the strategies within your installation is that in, there's there's this chroma keyed scene from Landers Peak with I don't want to say stereotypical, but pretty close to stereotypical Native Americans in the, the foreground of the scene. And on top of that foreground of the scene is where you place your pictures of Remington sculptures. You do a lot of layering in your work and in its presentation. We'll talk, presentations, we'll talk about that as we go along. Were you mindful or how were you mindful of layering one fiction on top of another, one idea of the Cowboy West on top of Bierstadt's fantasy of the West? Well, you know, the the nice thing about this installation space where it's located in the museum, one actually has to walk through it in order to get to the main gallery spaces to see, you know, the original works. And so I wanted to create this almost like a setup in the beginning where you, you, you're not looking at, you know, the work itself, you're looking at excerpts or appropriative acts, you know, of the sculptures and paintings, and you're seeing them repositioned in ways that kind of question either the heroicism you know, of the original subject, or a kind of, I guess, like a segmenting or even like a cutting up and almost a collage style to kind of point to how these things were actually constructed. And so the the photographs that you're talking about of the Remingtons, I had the real pleasure of working with the staff at the museum because, well, the one thing I want to point out too is that, you know, one of the, the privileges of doing this kind of work is that you get invited by a museum to come in and and literally, you know, use their their holdings as kind of material for new work. And that takes a certain amount of, I guess, trust, really. And so I really have to thank the curator, Kristen Gale. So with the photographs of the sculptures, I was able to ask the conservation crew to pull them out of holdings. And then we reshot them using hands and other objects that come into the frame both to kind of show the scale of the sculptures, because it's interesting when you look at the the original Remingtons, they're actually quite small. You know, they're not huge, and but they have this outsized presence in the imagination. And, you know, they loom so large. And so the actual photographs in the installa- installation are printed quite large. You know, they're they're actually six feet high. And so they're much larger than the originals. But then you see these giant hands kind of coming into the frame, you know, like holding the sculptures or measuring them, or in some cases kind of intervening with little color calibration charts. And it was a way to kind of put them back down to to size, you know, to show what a tiny little kind of manufactured object or idea they were, but, you know, that they could also hold so much of the American imagination. Up against the full-color chromolithograph on the other wall, um, as I think you mentioned earlier, you have focused on hands in artworks in the Carter collection and layered on top of the wall, I don't know, excerpted hands, photographs of excerpted hands from artworks. You use hands a lot. We'll get to that in a moment. Why hands and why here? There are 25 hands, you know, dotting paintings that are on view in the main Carter gallery space. And so I walked around through the gallery with my camera shooting, you know, just literally in the gallery space, but focusing on the hands specifically because I realized that most of the people, men in particular, doing things in these paintings, you know, it's a, they're very verb filled paintings. So, you know, there were lots of hands, right? Like grabbing things, pulling, pushing, reining in, pointing, you know, it was, it was very much a a kind of like active 
sort of space in these uh, in many of these paintings. And so when if you focused on just the hands, you realize that it became this kind of one could put together a kind of narrative of this manipulation, I guess, of, of the the story or the creation of the American West, but also the the, the overlay of actual force. You can see images of hands holding guns or of holding whips. And I really wanted to make present on top of the landscape the kind of invisible forces of, you know, white supremacy, really, and patriarchy in terms of its expansion into the West. So while we're talking about hands, last year you made a work called Shutter Release, for which you investigated the so-called Philippine Village at the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis. So what the heck was that? The Philippine Village was a white supremacist construction, a so-called human zoo, an idea that Americans borrowed from Europeans, it must be said, in which over 1,200 indigenous people from the northern Philippines were costumed in loincloths and whatnot and made to perform in a manner determined by white constructions of otherhood and lesserhood, of course, for a white audience in a way that helped justify American exceptionalism and imperialism, particularly in the Philippines. Oh, and this work is on view all over the country right now, I should add. It's on view at Ryan Lee Gallery in New York, and it's on view at the Smithsonian Institution's Art and Industries Building in an exhibition, I think a 32,000-square-foot exhibition, believe it or not, called Futures. Um, 32,000 square feet. I mean, I'm not sure there are football stadiums that big. So to make that work, you used physically used your hands to blot out the photographs made in and of the Philippine village at the 1904 World's Fair. What is the relationship between your use of your own hands in that work from 2021 and your use of art historical hands in the Carter work, which sort of is also from 2021? So the two installations that were the two artworks you're talking about, the one at the Carter and also the, the photographic works that are, you know, both in the Smithsonian as well as at, at Ryan Lee Gallery, they appear different, you know, but they are really related. And so to back up a little with, you know, the Philippine village at the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904, that was produced because of American colonialism, right? So after the, the Spanish-American War, the U.S. found itself with both you know, with the Philippines and Puerto Rico and Cuba. Let me jump in real quick. That war uh, dates to 1898, so six years before the World's Fair. Yeah, and so the the connection between, you know, the, the construction of that Philippine village really was, it was a teaching tool for the American public and a way to think about how the new colony that America found itself essentially ruling over needed a kind of uplift and needed a kind of stewardship by the American, by uh, American white folks, really. And, you know, that literally, I think about the American colonial expansion into the Philippines and overseas as a kind of logical next step of the U.S.'s westward expansion across the continental United States. Like if you keep going west, you actually, you cross the Pacific Ocean and you go to the Philippines. And so, you know, the Bronco Buster as well, this notion of the Remington sculpture that was made of the kind of cowboy who sets out forward. There was a, a famous Remington sculpture that was also presented to Teddy Roosevelt and who Teddy Roosevelt also, you know, had a little foray into the Philippines as well. And I think, you know, the, the connection between these two things is, is pretty clear, but I think to the American public, they seem somehow very separate, 
you know, like something that happens overseas can't possibly have a connection to something, you know, in the quote unquote homeland of the United States. Which is wild because the foremost congressional argument for American expansion into the into the West of North America came from Thomas Hart Benton. And Benton's justification for continental imperialism was that it would get America into Asia. So it was there from the beginning. And, and yet I think you're right that in contemporary understanding, the link has fallen away, even as scholars such as Daniel Immerwar have worked mightily to tell a story of total American imperialism rather than just imperialism in the Pacific or just imperialism in North America, just to, to link them as, as being related and as stemming from a single ideology, which they were. One of the other things you do in a lot of work, including in the work up at Smithsonian and Ryan Lee now and in this Eamon Carter work, is that you physically layer material, mostly but not entirely images, on top of other material. It is a, a, a go-to move of yours. In fact, I think one of the works is even called pile-ups, which is kind of a an acknowledgement of the type. I get the ideological reason for that. Is there something about what that does or how that works pictorially that also works for you? You know, a lot of this work also kind of stemmed from a Smithsonian Artist Research Fellowship that I had back in 2019 and the early part of 2020 before the pandemic took over. But there was a, I was spending a lot of time in the archive center just looking through folders, you know, file folders of like archival imagery and documents and photographs. And, you know, if you've ever done that kind of work before, the, the kind of literal pileup, right, of things, whether in a folder or in a box or whatever, they sometimes create these really fascinating kinds of re-edited collages in a natural sense, really. I mean, it's just stuff lying on a table, but the more that you you kind of push things up against each other, the more you can kind of think about these potential alternative narratives for what you're seeing. And for myself as a Filipino-American artist and researcher, you know, I was literally trying to look for representational images of the Philippines in particular, but through the lens of the American archive. And so thinking about how the empire looks at its own colony, like what what were what were the things that were collected or deemed, you know, important to know about this colony? Yeah, so I by rephotographing things in the archive and using layered techniques and also using my hands, like you mentioned before, you know, to almost like re-edit. It's kind of a way for me to talk back to the archive or, you know, you, you can't really remove anything from an archive, right? Like it's literally there for researchers to then, you know, come to and hopefully create, you know, a more complicated narrative. But I found it really useful to just by reconfiguring things in the picture plane, you can create some really radical shifts as to like what's in the foreground and what's in the background. And that's both as a kind of like, you know, political activity as well as a, I guess, talking back to the archive. Your work has played with layering before in a, in a, project you did for the Baltimore Museum of Art a couple of years ago, you literally put something on top of sculptures, for example. So the relationship between things being on top of other things has has been in your work for a while. But here it seems like you're taking it like 
four steps further. You, you're using it as a compositional device. You're talking about history. You're talking about the construction of history, the construction of art history. And I am guessing it's something that is going to stick around in your work for a while because it seems like it really fits. Were you conscious of arriving at that as a strategy within your practice as, 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 as something to develop or was it more accidental than it was purposeful? Well, I think I realized at some point that I have a really appropriative practice. You know, like I, I don't really, it's strange. Like I, I sometimes feel critical of myself because I, I realize, you know, I don't do say original drawings or paintings or I don't make things through my own sort of, I guess, construction of it. I usually wind up, I pull from a lot of different sources and then create whether they're installation collages or pictorial collages, there are definitely these sort of excerpts that happen. I think for me, that's actually a kind of conceptual move because I'm also trying to think about how, I guess just from my own background and my own interests, I'm interested in less about authorship, like this grand narrative of authorship, but more about the strategies of what it means to attempt to create a place for oneself in history, but using the images and objects of what you're given. And, you know, I guess that's a very deep way of saying that I've justified, I've justified all my appropriation because I want to use the empire's own images and documents of itself. I wanted to ask specifically about two of the moves that exist within the body of work you developed out of the Smithsonian Fellowship. The first one is a work called, it's got a very long title, I'm going to shorten it, Better America Poverty Lecture, Hillis Better America Lecture Service Lantern Slides. And then there are like another 15 words. And this is a work wherein somebody, perhaps you, wearing a white glove in the archive is holding up, you know, a slide that would go into a projector and the thing would be projected on a wall. And so normally we would see what that image is, but it has been degraded and it looks like it's just kind of like a squeegeed mess. Am I getting that? Is, is that all fair? It's a picture and an individual work that reminded me right away of Gerhard Richter's squeegee paintings, which of course began in 1989 after the fall of the Berlin War and the fall of really the communist system in Eastern Europe. And so Richter uses this idea of squeegeeing paint across the canvas as a metaphor for the layers and complications of history. Whether Richter knew or not that Jack Whitten was, had, had already been making squeegee paintings is unknown, at least by me. Long way of asking, boy, this sure looks like a squeegeed Richter. Were you interested in or playing with that visual relationship? You know, I happen to love Richter. In a way, I, I know what you're talking about, and I, I was thinking very loosely about abstraction, actually. So it does tie into Richter in that sense. Because what you see, so instead of seeing a picture of something in the slide, right, which is, you know, that slide was made as a pedagogical tool to show the, the topic of poverty, whatever that could mean in, in American history. And yet, because of the way the image has been scratched on the slide, it renders it into this like abstraction, almost like it reminds me a little of like static from a TV, but very physically, you know, going in different directions. Color TV, yeah. Yeah, or like a panorama or a landscape or something like that. And it just stood out to me as this really apt metaphor for how, you know, even within the kind of massive American archive, there are these moments of like 
you know, like really kind of poignant accidental statements. And, you know, when we, I think now, you know, in the last really since about 2016, when I shifted a lot of my work to look into the construction of American history, you know, going through the American archive at the Smithsonian was also a way to kind of see the gaps and the accidents that the archive itself was showcasing. So that particular work, yeah, it's, I would say it's abstracted, you know, in a big sense. It's also, you know, part of a larger collection of images that I made that show the kind of disintegration or the damage or, you know, the the holes in the archive itself. And that, to me, was also a kind of sociopolitical statement. So were you interested in how much it recalls a Richter and engaging his way of addressing history? <laughs> Back to Richter. You know, I would say not as a one-to-one relationship, but, you know, knowing Richter's outsize kind of, you know, space in the, in the imagination and also the very physicality of it, right? So, like, if you if you watch, you know, videos of him actually doing that work, they're, they're huge. And, you know, writ large on this slide, which is blown up to about, you know, five feet wide, it does kind of bring it into kind of painting pictorial space. Yeah. And of course, the other relationship there is uh, one of Richter's first squeegee paintings that addresses the fall of East Germany is in St. Louis, where you made the work we were talking about earlier. It's at the St. Louis Art Museum. Another move from the Smithsonian series that pops up a lot is crumpling. That, If I'm using that word too abstractly, I mean, the works are literally titled crumpling something. And it's like, you know, crumpled up pieces of paper. Why is, I'm trying to find another word for crumpling, and I tried to find another word for crumpling in my notes, but I couldn't come up with one. It turns out to be a pretty good word. <laughs> Why did things being crumpled up interested, interest you? You know, for a couple of reasons. Like one, I think, you know, crumpling something is a very visceral act. It suggests this notion that maybe something was written down or an image of something was produced that now all of a sudden has is no longer useful. So you crumple it up and you throw it away. It also, I think, is almost a, it can be seen as a gesture, a, a kind of violent gesture, really, because if you think about crumpling, you're not allowed to crumple things in an archive, <laughs> right? I mean, they are, they are there and they are permanent and you, or you respect it and you, you, know, you, you try to preserve it as best as possible. And so for some of the images in which I was literally, you know, distorting and crumpling and adding these little wrinkles into the image, I was doing that using uh, proxies, you know, like copies or reprints or that kind of thing. So it was a way, again, to talk back to an archive, but also to have this, like, I guess, very intimate yet visceral response to images that were incredibly problematic. And in the case of the work that you're talking about, these were ethnographic photographs taken of Filipinos that, you know, positioned them in such a way to show their kind of inferiority. Ah, but you're crumpling everything. I mean, you are crumpling those, of course, yes. But you're crumpling like those calibration sheets that help calibrate color photographs, too. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, the whole, I mean, the history of photography also as a medium goes hand in hand with certain, you know, in pictorial inventions, such as like the mugshot which was highly, which was also related to, you know, the way ethnographic photography was developed. So like that front, front portrait, side portrait, you know, the kind of notion that photography could kind of encapsulate, you know, the, the essence or the kind of how people should be viewed. Your Frederick Remington pictures at the Eamon Carter feature Remington's against a black textile. The black textile is crumpled. 
Is there a relationship between the crumpling of pseudo-archival material, if you will, <laughs> and the crumpling of the material on which the Remingtons are cited? So when we were setting up that shot, and this is kind of the fun thing about producing artwork on site, usually, you know, for these types of projects, I don't have a lot of time. <laughs> like we, we usually, we can, you know, carve out, say, like four or five hours to do a photo shoot, and then everyone has to go do something else. And so we yeah. snuck in, you know, by, by, we used all their, like the backdrop material and the kind of things that they had in the photo studio already. And one of them was the satin, black satin background that honestly, we didn't have enough time or we weren't able to iron out. And so I wound up just, you know, crumpling it or making it look very rippled. And then the way that the sculpture itself, which is very dark, like an almost a, a black, you know, kind of color, we were able to light it so that instead of having this perfectly neutral backdrop, the, the black satin backdrop also becomes a kind of visual player in the work. And so maybe similar too to how I was having the Bierstadt backdrops, right, also become this foreground, like it, the, the cowboy sculpture and the backdrop itself starts to kind of blend in together. Last thing on the Carter show, your installation, as we talked about earlier, fills a long, narrow space in the Carter's Philip Johnson designed building. And as you noted earlier, to access the collection and exhibition gallery, you walk in the front door, past a desk, and then you're in this space. So as a visitor enters this space, your installation is on the left and the right, and thanks to some curtains kind of ahead of you. But between those curtains, the other thing a visitor sees is Augusta St. Gaudens's sculpture of Diana from the 1890s, uh, a six and a half foot high sculpture that extends a narrow European civilization construct, one enormously influential on both American culture and polity. And, and it's a sculpture that argues for the centrality of European-American constructions of civilization to the United States. Was that Diana being there? And, and I should note that sculpture has been there at the Carter in that spot for as long as I can remember. Was that Diana being there your idea? Did you welcome it into your idea? Do you consider it within the context of your installation? How do you how do you think of its presence there? Yeah, well, I'm looking at a picture of it right now. And it is, I mean, it's smack dab right in the middle of that hallway space. And I wasn't able to move that sculpture. Like it it, it has its home there. And it, you know, it, it's kind of a constant that you have to sort of work around. But I think your, your story of it, your narrative of it is interesting, because I don't think that's the narrative that a lot of people at the museum visitors would come to. Like they would see it as, you know, this very classical kind of female sculpture, really. And that, you know, we're the ex with the expectation that we're supposed to see it as a thing of beauty. It's also missing the arrow, I think, which is interesting. Imagine anything in Texas being without its armament. <laughs> Yeah. And then it's also next to, you know, the the installation, my installation of hands holding guns and other weapons. And, you know, that's very gendered because the my hands are man hands. And literally the installation is called manhandled, or at least, you know, that portion of the work. It wasn't on purpose, you know, to think about the Diana sculpture. But now that I think about it, I think what what could come up, which is interesting, is that maybe a casual viewer could also you know, consider a new relationship of, say, gendered presence 
I also think a lot about, you know, during the time that this installation was being made and the fact that it's up in Texas right now, which is, you know, enacting some of the most restrictive abortion laws and thinking too about how a history of kind of either patriarchal or, you know, male white supremacist overlays on top of the state or the the country exist. And yeah, I mean, I, I guess this is my long way of saying that, no, I did not actually have a kind of dialogue with the Diana sculpture. And I, but I think depending on the viewer's you know, perspective, it could be read in, in different ways. I guess this is a question for you. Do you think it's appropriate that it's there? Well, that actually kind of feeds into what was going to be my last question. I think that it's not inappropriate. I mean, it's not, you know, to me, like it isn't a question of appropriateness. It's a question of whether or not we, and I mean we such as viewers or historians or art professionals or artists, whether we understand that Diana is existing within the narrative that you're presenting, which I think is unmissable. But I also know not everyone is, you know, a scholar of whiteness. And so I guess that kind of comes to the question of, as the museum presents the project, are they including, you know, what is 27 inches outside the gallery? (laughs) You know, I haven't been in Texas in two years, thanks pandemic. So I don't know if they are or not, but I would hope that as the museum moves forward in its documentation of your project, whether that is in book form or whatever, that the museum includes what you have to see. The visitor cannot see your installation without seeing the St. Gaudens. Yeah, and you're right, like looking at this image too, the the curtains, right, on either side of it almost frame perfectly not as almost a- not almost <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it is and and i i guess that in a way i mean the the point of those curtains was to show that once you pass through them you're still entering into a stage-like presence which is the rest of the museum and right? the saint gardens <laughs> yeah yeah no, so that's a that, i think it's actually it's pretty amazing that there is it is right there so that, that kind of ties into what the last thing I wanted to ask you about was, and that is, that is this. American art museums over the last couple of years have developed a very specific, uh, and I would argue limited, playbook for dealing with their collections in the context of historical white supremacy. And the strategy goes something like this. The museum brings in a contemporary artist, typically of the global majority, and says, here, you deal with this and then they just kind of wave at their collections and get out of the way and let the artist do what the artist wants to do. And if that was one of the tools in an institutional toolkit, that would be fine and dandy. But it it really hasn't been. It's really been the entire strategy of how institutions have addressed questions of imperialism and other questions of white supremacy within their collections. And it kind of has served to let the institutions off the hook. So it relieves institutions of the hard work of doing new history, of interrogating their own collections of detailing how art worked in reinforcing or extending problematic ideologies. And of course, it has served to relieve the museum of looking at itself and its own contributions to white supremacy or misogyny and how that museum may have benefited from such. And so in the last year or so, and increasingly in the last few months, I've talked with a lot of artists who are kind of exasperated by institutions placing the work of the institution at the feet of the artists they bring in for 10 weeks and and artists who've been frustrated that institutions have not joined them in interrogating both 
the institution and arts history and arts role in the construction of the idea of the American nation. All of which is to ask, here's the Carter handing the problem to you, an artist, saying you deal with it. Are you okay with that? Is it okay for you that, you know, an institution is asking you to do historical work that it may or may not be doing itself? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. And I mean, it's a good question. And, it, and it's also really complicated, you know, for all the reasons you stated, which is, you know, on one hand, it, it sort of like shunts some of the ability for like a new vision, you know, to happen on a temporary basis, right? Like artist projects come in, and then the good news is they leave. <laughs> right, exactly. They're the core of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. But I and I I know what you're getting at. And I I've definitely thought this, you know, very specifically as well and and had these discussions with other artists. And at the same time, too, I have to think that, like, you know, most of the curators that I work with when called to do these things, you know, they they know what they're getting themselves into. And they're they're attempting to kind of create very slow institutional change. And in a way, artists or living artists can become kind of the the test cases or the proxies for it because you know when our projects come out then they can kind of gauge audience reaction but 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 should the work of historians be gauged on the work of the audience that receives it i mean you do the work or you don't do the work you don't do the work because joe from abilene thought it was okay to do the work sure sure yeah no you're right you're right and yeah and a lot of people aren't going to like the work so you know that that's a reality but I, I think you, you also mentioned to this notion that for the art institutions that are only doing this kind of work, in other words, like only, you know, using the artist as a kind of proxy, right, for actual work, that's where it's problematic. But I do, from my observations, and I know it's really complicated and each institution is really different, right? Like some, I think, should be fast-tracked, absolutely fast-tracked into a totally different reality. And then others, it, it's going to take some fine-tuning, you know, to figure out like how to do it properly. Then I, I guess I'm both optimistic and I'm also not optimistic, let's just say, because, you know, for those of us that have been waiting a very long time for, you know, a kind of visible shift, the weight, you know, can appear to still be going on. But again, I, I guess I just have to add, you know, that institutions are also made of people. Yeah. <laughs> and the, and some of the folks in there are really, really doing the good work. Stephanie Sihuko, thanks so much. It was great to be here, Tyler. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, Ulysses Jenkins without your interpretation. This major retrospective of the groundbreaking Los Angeles artist encompasses video works, performances, and archival ephemera that highlight the scope of Jenkins' 50-year practice. A pivotal influence on contemporary art since emerging in the late 1970s, Jenkins has constructed an other history that interrogates race and gender as they relate to ritual, history, and state power. Ulysses Jenkins, is on view at the Hammer Museum February 6th through May 15th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Explore the first U.S. museum retrospective of the pioneering artist Harry Bertoia at the Nasher Sculpture Center. See more than 100 works of sculpture, design, and jewelry that influenced culture, both at the mid-century and now. In complement to the exhibition, don't miss an installation from pioneering sound artist Olivia Block, which utilizes Bertoia's sound sculptures. Learn more and get your tickets at nashersculpturecenter.org.
Welcome back. My next guest is Kate Wilson, a senior lecturer in the Department of Classics and Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Last semester, Wilson taught a class called Race and Identity in Greco-Roman Antiquity. Concurrently, she organized a teaching gallery exhibition in WashU's Kemper Art Museum titled Colonizing the Past, Constructing Race in Ancient Greece and Rome. The project was the rare, very rare, presentation of a whiteness studies-informed exhibition in an American art museum. What is the field of whiteness studies? The historian Peter Colchin defined it as the examination of, quote, how diverse groups came to identify and be identified by others as white and what that meant for the social order. To put it another way, it's an examination of how race and racism happened. Kate Wilson, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Uh, Thanks for having me. Race is a cultural and political construct, which is to say it is not biological. In the last half century, uh, American scholars have followed constructions that Frederick Douglass first outlined in 1853 and that W.E.B. Du Bois extended and expanded on in Pond in 1920 to examine how whiteness, the racialization of pale skin tones, among other things, was constructed. So kind of picking up from there, how did your gallery and course tell stories about how race was constructed in modern times? Well, so the class that I was teaching, and this was sort of my first time teaching it, it's a class that I think a number of different universities have been offering recently. And there's kind of a number of different approaches you can take. And you always need to kind of focus on antiquity to some degree, right? So one of the big questions that we need to talk about is like, well, is there such a thing as race in the ancient world? Does it look like race in the modern world? Like, how does it differ? Are there continuities? Are there contrasts, etc.? And so some some people chose to sort of focus exclusively on that kind of race in the ancient world side of things. There are some scholars who have started to kind of also look at this kind of issue of, well, how is antiquity and the kind of construct of antiquity that emerges in the 18th and 19th century, especially playing a role in the development of modern racial ideas. And to me, it felt really important to do both of those things, partly for my own sake, because it seems really, I think, always valuable to remember that we are not sort of objective observers who are kind of trying to get back to antiquity, but products of our own time And the way we're thinking about the ancient world is always going to be shaped by the things that exist in our lives today. I was really trying to explore both of those questions at the same time, and they don't always intersect, as it turns out, but sometimes they do. And there are these interesting places where they do. And and to me, I thought art was one crucial place because so much of the art that starts in the Renaissance and then kind of moves forward ever since that's focused on sort of the ancient world, things that are kind of depicting scenes of mythology or history. Their view of the ancient world is in some ways shaped by the art that they are discovering from the ancient world, statues, architecture, pottery. But it's also shaped by their own kind of assumptions about what these people looked like that reflect sort of developing racial ideas. And so kind of looking at ancient art and modern art that's meant to depict antiquity at the same time, especially ancient Greece and Rome at the same time, was a really helpful way for us to understand how things that had a particular meaning in antiquity get interpreted over time in the modern era and produce art that is very much racialized in a modern context. 
all of this has been hugely important, not only to the history of art in the American colonies and then the United States, but also to the ways in which American artists helped inform and extend the idea of the American nation starting in the 1770s and continuing into well into the 20th century. So if we go back to the ancient world for a moment, would Greeks and Romans have understood our notions or constructions of race? Probably not, right? <laughs> this is sort of the simplest answer I can give you. And I want to caveat everything by saying that everything that we want to understand about race and antiquity is sort of hampered by the fact that the vast, vast majority of evidence that we would want is lost forever, right? We're trying to reconstruct like incredibly complex social ideas based on just a tiny handful of texts and artifacts. And often those are not even the piece of evidence that we would most want for this type of thing. So yeah, it's always going to be kind of, there's no, you're not going to get a lot of declarative sentences from me, I'm afraid. But one thing that I did sort of frame my class around is this question of of whiteness and sort of are the ancient Greeks and Romans white, right? And and I think for a, a classicist can give a, a relatively clear answer here that no, they were not white in the sense that whiteness was not a concept that really existed until much, much later in time. And skin color was not the dominant criterion by which either the Greeks or the Romans differentiated themselves from other people in ways that we might call race. And also they didn't think of themselves as part of a collective group with other people who shared the same skin tone as them. So it's not like they're thinking of themselves as like, you know, Roman skin colored people or anything like that. They're thinking of themselves as Romans and skin color is not really a major factor in that, partly because it's important to remember that people who lived in ancient Greece and Rome had different skin colors. <laughs> we like to think of these ancient societies as incredibly homogenous, where kind of everyone sort of looked the same way, but that's really not true. Both of the civilizations of Greece and Rome are, you know, part of this larger Mediterranean world with all of these other cultures that are constantly in, in contact with each other. They're sometimes allying with each other, sometimes fighting each other, sometimes colonizing each other's land. And there's just a just churn of population. We know for a fact that you have people with different skin colors living in both ancient Greece and Rome. But even if you were going to sort of pick the kind of median skin tone as sort of the most common skin tone that you would see in these countries, it may not even necessarily be a skin color that we would today call white, right? What we mean by white is always sort of a changing issue, but there's all of these different ways in which white is not the right term in any way for the people that lived in ancient Greece or Rome. So perhaps using uh, works in the gallery you constructed for your course and show, what might the range of colors that ancient artists used to depict skin tell or show us? Well, so we do get a range of colors used for skin in depicting humans in ancient art. Looking at Greek pottery, which is, you know, one of our kind of most rich sources of evidence for depictions of people, specifically Athenian pottery, I should say, is one of our uh, most uh, rich areas of, of evidence. And there's two different artistic styles that are used in Greek pottery, in Athenian pottery. One is called black figure, where you have human shapes 
in a black glaze on a red background. The red background is just caused by the clay that's used for those ceramics. And then after a few centuries, we get what's called red figure, where you have the people who are in the red of the clay and the background is black glaze. I'm not an expert on how the kind of mechanics of making these <laughs> these ceramics, but it, it, some of it is just sort of a byproduct of the materials that they're using. And it doesn't really seem like they're very interested in depicting the skin color of of Greeks. It's not the piece of semantic information that they're most interested in conveying there. But we do get colors for skin being used to mark gender. So very often you will have men depicted with the black glaze and then you might have this opaque white painted over a woman to indicate her gender. So you get this black men, white women dichotomy that gets used in a lot of Athenian pottery. It's something that we see in earlier pottery as well. It might go back to Egypt, actually, where there's a similar aesthetic trend going on. And you can see that there's information that's being provided to the viewer by the color that's being used for the skin. It's just not racial information that's being provided. And so that kind of indicates to us that skin color is not a particularly dominant criterion, again, for how they're thinking about difference between groups of people. You mentioned 18th and early 19th century German scholars. A group of them begun, begin to construct race in philosophy and in pseudoscience, which then comes to the U.S. at the end of the 18th century. Are there objects in your presentation that suggest how that happened? Well, I mean, a large part of how they're thinking about antiquity is sort of influenced by marble sculpture. And you can see this. This is something uh, Nell Irvin Painter has, has written about, that when they're doing this phrenology and they're kind of coming up with these insanely racist mathematical equations for like the structure of skulls, the kind of extreme example is a marble statue. It's the Apollo Belvedere, which is kind of a fascinating thing because it's it's meant to depict Greek, an ancient Greek person, but it's actually a Roman statue that's a copy, presumably, of a Greek statue. So it's not even really the Greek statue itself, but it's, so it's the sort of layers of artificiality, right? It's a Roman copy of a statue that's supposed to stand in for a human skull. And actually, it's originally used to kind of prove that humans actually are, are closer together, but it gets picked up by racists pretty easily as a sort of ideal of like what the skull is supposed to look like. And this kind of idealized whiteness that the ancient Greeks come to represent. And it's really, it's, it's very much tied to marble sculpture and, and these sort of really famous, beautiful, beautiful statues that are becoming discovered at this particular time, especially starting in the 18th century and then into the 19th century. So the Kemper has one ancient marble sculpture. It's actually just a torso. So it, it doesn't give us a whole lot in terms of the phrenology, but it's still really valuable for, for showing just how much these kind of ancient objects are, are such an influential piece of this story. Recently, there's been a lot of discussion of the fact that ancient statues were often painted. And this is definitely true, not universally, but, but definitely very, very often. And a lot of that paint just has worn off over the millennia. And so when they are excavated in the 18th and 19th centuries, they're seeing them and they're just assuming that, that they, were in, they were kind of displayed with this white marble. 
as the as the kind of focus when in fact that really wasn't actually the case at all in antiquity. But more to the point, it sort of serves their own purposes because as you have this idea of whiteness already developing, you know, they choose to see the whiteness of the marble as being significant in a way that they don't choose to see the black glaze on these Athenian pots as significant, right? So you have ancient art that that can support this white supremacist ideology, and you have ancient art that sort of goes against it, and people are just selectively interpreting these artifacts in a way that uh, validates what they're already thinking. Yes. And of course, there is sculpture that was made that was not white marble. So it extends in all ways. You mentioned Nell Irvin Painter's book. It's called The History of White People. It's fantastic and legible. It was published about 10 years ago. Another good book in this area is Reginald Horseman's 1981 Race and Manifest Destiny, The Origins of American Racial Anglo-Saxonism, also spectacularly legible. And you mentioned how these classical sculptures looked as being important. But, you know, one of the scholar, one, one of the 18th century scholars we, we mentioned, we've mentioned a couple times, Peter Camper, even went so far as to measure the uh, faces of sculptures and made arguments about what facial angle resulted in the smartest and highest form of racialized human. All, all, all work that was readily accepted and added to by Americans in the late 18th and early 19th century. In your gallery, you included two works that point to the fluidity of definitions of whiteness. One is a French drawing from 1820, and the other is a French painting from 55, I'm not good at math, 55 years later. This is pretty interesting. What does juxtaposing those two works reveal? Yeah, so I put these in because I'm particularly interested in what I'm calling the temporal boundaries of whiteness. Obviously, skin tone is sort of the central feature that we use today as our defining characteristic of race, but geography is also a very common component of our kind of taxonomies of race, right? We think about people from Asia as being a particular race, people from Africa as being from a particular race, people from Europe, etc. And what is really notable when you start to think about antiquity and you actually look at not just the modern borders of countries like Greece and Italy, but the actual places that were part of ancient Greek civilization and ancient ancient Roman Empire, is that you have people who are living in places in antiquity who have been completely subsumed into whiteness, while the modern people who live in that exact same place are excluded from it. And we can see this with even modern Greeks and modern Italians who were allowed into whiteness at a much later date than the ancient Greeks and Romans, for one thing. But even today, Turkey is kind of a really notable place where we can see this hypocrisy existing because, of course, Aeneas is going to eventually become the founder of Rome, sort of. Uh, But he's born in Troy which is a city that is in modern-day Turkey. And his father is a Trojan, Anchises. And we have this drawing of this scene from Virgil's Aeneid, the meeting of Aeneas with Anchises in the Elysian Fields, where they're both very pale, (laughs) and they're clearly meant to to be white. And we also have a depiction of this painting that's called the Smyrna Girls, where you have this collection of young girls. Uh, Smyrna is just a few hundred miles south of 
Troy, very much in the same place. But these girls are not given the same kind of whiteness. They're they're sort of dark complected. Their hair is dark. Let me jump in with something from the painting. There is a white building in the background that is clearly intended by the painter to be read as a bright white building. And it's quite obvious that the skin tone of the five women in the painting is otherwise. Right. Yeah. So you have these girls who are who are very clearly not not white. They're they're dark complected. And you have that contrasted with a white building, but also with a little white dog too, right? So there are these like ways in which their non-whiteness is being marked by these other things in the painting itself, right? So, so you have, you know. Let me let me just also say we'll have the image on manpodcast.com, but these five women are literally pictorially bordered by the white dog in the white building. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and and I, I think that this is a really common trend that we see with depictions of antiquity, right? That the people who lived in these places in antiquity are white. The people who live there today are not. And it was especially true in the 19th century. It's sort of as whiteness has kind of expanded in the last hundred years, some of that hypocrisy has sort of become less obvious, but there's always this temporal boundary where the people of the past get racialized in a way that's convenient to the people in power. The the places that they want to claim as their heritage just get kind of subsumed into race without too much concern about what it would imply about the people who live there today, because you can always come up with a theory for why the people who live there today are not connected to the people who lived there a thousand, two thousand years ago. The kind of most notorious example of this is that the Nazis had a theory that basically every ancient civilization was created by Germans, right, who came out of Germany, went south into places like Greece and Egypt and created these amazing civilizations and then got kind of racially (laughs) mixed into the people who were already living there and stopped being Germans, were not racially pure enough at that point, but they get to claim those ancient civilizations as part of their heritage through this theory. And I mean, it's nonsense, right? There's no actual, like, of course. Yeah, it also gives them a way to avoid blaming Germans for the fall of those empires and, and, and exactly <laughs> right. It's racial mixture that 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 causes the failure of those civilizations, and that's a that's a narrative that the Nazis did not invent, right? That goes back to a lot of earlier ideas about how the Roman Empire fa- fell, that they sort of allowed too much racial integration of these people from the places that they invaded, kind of getting to be part of the empire. And that that was what broke them apart. So you already have that narrative there that allows you to blame non-white people for the ending of these civilizations that you want to claim as your own. And it is sort of adopted by various people to varying degrees. But certainly it's a very common idea that's out there. So we've been talking about art and, and art's importance in constructing these concepts. There's a major work in the Kemper's collection that both points to the racialized construction of beauty ideals and undermines them. What is that work and what is the uh, work it does? I included Romari Bearden's collage Black Venus from 1968. It's actually the most recent work in the uh, collection. And I really love this piece. It's it's absolutely beautiful. And also, it's it's really important, I think, because... Most of the works in the collection are white artists depicting Greeks and Romans as white. And there's always been this counter narrative. There's a very long history 
of African-American classical scholarship that goes all the way back to Phyllis Wheatley in the 18th century. But there's always been a pushback against that claiming of antiquity for whiteness. And you can see it in Ramar Bearden's art. He has this depiction of a woman who is very clearly black lying on a couch and she's called Black Venus. And it's sort of a a reminder that there's always been this default assumption of whiteness in the depiction of these Greek and Roman deities, but there is this counter narrative that's that just hasn't been given as much exposure, especially in museums. Yes, and 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 it's interesting to me also that American artists have been exploring and interrogating these ideas. Uh, and I think you'd have to say that the artists have been doing that a lot more than historians of American art, for example, have. So to wrap up, uh, you, you put this gallery and course together, of course, to, to share it with students. How did students r- respond to the histories and narratives you were presenting? On the whole, I think really well. I will say the first time I asked them to go through it, I asked them to go through without reading any of the introductory material first and just walk through and look at the artifacts and look at the art throughout. And they were all very confused. (laughs) They were not really sure why some of these things were there. Some things felt obvious to them and other things were confusing. And I think especially the things that were there to talk about whiteness were confusing to them, right? They sort of had been so trained to think like, of course, if it's art about antiquity, the default is going to be that there's going to be white skin, that it didn't even really occur to them that that's making a racial statement. And then once they started reading the essay that I wrote for it and kind of going through the exhibit with kind of my guidance for it, they actually found a lot of connections that I didn't find, to be honest. They, they made some connections that I hadn't seen that were amazing. There are a number of pieces in the exhibit that are depictions of people leaving slavery. And you have kind of a white ancient Gaul leaving slavery, where it's very clear that he has freed himself. Whereas we have a statue that's supposed to celebrate the uh, end of American slavery. And the focus of it is entirely on Abraham Lincoln as the liberator, while you have this formerly enslaved man kind of crouching at his feet. And so he's not given the same agency in leaving slavery that this kind of white ancient Gaul is. They also noticed a lot of uses of the Phrygian cap, which is interesting because in antiquity, it's actually a marker of ethnicity of of a particular people from a particular region of Asia Minor. So it's actually something that, that might have racial connotations in ancient art. It's this very distinctive cap it sort of looks like a smurf cap it's kind of conical and it not kind of it looks exactly like a smurf cap <laughs> a smurf hat <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway so so it, it's in antiquity it's a marker of, of people from phrygia but because they were commonly enslaved in the roman empire and then it's very complicated evolution but during the roman uh, during the french revolution it becomes a symbol of of freedom and so we have it being used in a number of different works that I didn't even realize it was being used in. And and sometimes in ancient works, it is being used as an ethnic marker. In others, it's being used as a, as a symbol of freedom. And this kind of whitewashing of the sort of racial ideology of American slavery in some ways by kind of equating it with ancient slavery, which had no 
racial justification underneath it. And was not a chattel system. Well, in some places, yes, it was. We have a number of different systems of slavery in antiquity, and some of them are in many ways quite similar in terms of how people were being used to the way that they were used in the antebellum United States. And it was actually very omnipresent in the ancient world. I should say this is something that has sort of been coming to light a little bit more. There's a lot of terms in Greek and Latin texts that are talking about a person who's a servant of some kind. And it would be understood by an ancient Greek or an ancient Roman that that person was enslaved. But often when they're translated, they're translated as maid or attendant or secretary. And so when, they're, when you're reading an English translation of these texts, the slavery is obscured. And it's, I think, coming from a sort of discomfort that a lot of classic scholars have had with just how omnipresent slavery was in antiquity. But it, it really wasn't racialized in, in the same way that it is today, that it, that, it, that it was in the United States, in large part because they were just taking people from everywhere. And of course, fridging caps have been much used in American art from the 18th century forward, including the recent example of work by Martin Purrier. Kate Wilson, thank you very much. Uh, thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.